You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We begin tonight with that powerful earthquake that struck parts of Turkey and Syria. Hundreds and maybe even thousands of buildings collapsed when the 7.8 magnitude quake struck and more came down in a series of powerful aftershocks. More than 3,400 people have been killed and there are fears that toll will climb as high as 20,000. Mike Trollet has the latest. The sun had yet to rise on southeastern Turkey, the full scope of the damage unknown as rescue workers began combing through collapsed buildings. A young girl saved, her brother a few minutes later. The fate of their parents unknown. Witnesses say the 7.8 magnitude quake, one of the largest ever recorded in Turkey in northern Syria, shook the ground for two solid minutes. The shaking continued through the morning and then roughly nine hours after the first quake, a second one measuring 7.5 struck to the north. Weakened buildings collapsed, sending rescuers scrambling for safety. In northern Syria, buildings already damaged from 11 years of civil war crumbled. This family, like so many others, has no idea where to go. We're scared for the children, she says. We went back home, but a new earthquake took place, so we went back to the street. Help is on the way. Turkey says it had offers of assistance from 45 countries, but the window to pull survivors from the rubble is quickly closing. And the situation is even more dire in Syria. Toronto's Global Medic pulled its operations from the war-torn area several years ago. They are so overmatched right now with what they're facing and there's nobody coming in to help them. There's no international teams. There's no access in. They can't come in from the Syrian side. There's only one route in from the Turkish side. Complicating matters, it will take months to assess the buildings still standing throughout the massive area impacted by the earthquakes. Already, thousands are dead. And long term, that could climb higher if enough shelters aren't provided to fend off the cold. We'll be cold here until morning, freezing, getting wet, says the survivor. We have no place to go, no place to stay. My God, we don't even have a bed. Mike Drolet, Global News. And as you can imagine, the earthquake is taking a huge emotional toll for many right here in B.C. Many in the local Turkish and Syrian communities are desperately trying to contact loved ones back home. And for some, the news is grim. Kamal Karamali reports. The shock waves from Monday's devastating earthquake toppling large buildings, killing thousands. The emotional ripple effect felt all the way on the other side of the world in Metro Vancouver. Nadal Izden, a former member of the Syrian White Helmets Emergency Response Group, has been up on the phone all night. We start to, to bring all all organization who work in this situation together. Only when taking a short break for our interview <sighs> do the emotions finally surface. Yeah. <sighs> my brothers and my father and my mother, they are living in south of Turkey where the earthquake uh, happened. They survived, but both he and his wife have lost friends. Many living in southern Turkey are Syrian refugees. Everyone told me, 
we have relatives and they just did and we have someone know and they did and I have like friends and they did. Here at this local Turkish coffee shop in Vancouver, community members are coming together to check in on one another. You know, your friends, your friends' families from there or whatever, you know, it hits. Former president of the Turkish Canadian Society trying to find a way to get resources to the region before more die from cold and hunger. They will probably open relief fund account that uh, uh, we will uh, probably start collecting donations. He also teaches engineering at UBC. During our interview, one of his students approached us to share her story. It was so panicking because I was there just this Christmas and, and it was just learning that everything just fallen apart and I, I know uh, the people there. Was, I was kind of like shaking, kind of still shaking. Clearly no limit to the number of people affected. A tragedy shaking two countries and two communities here in BC. Kamal Karamali, Global News. Scientists say destructive earthquakes like the one in Turkey provide really important information that could save lives in the future. With BC situated in an active earthquake zone, one seismologist says there are valuable lessons to be learned. And a lot of research is still underway, but um, the work that we've done is, is folded directly into our national building code. It's used in bridge codes and dam codes and standards. Um, so the information that we're learning about these giant earthquakes, uh, both those in Brit here off the coast of British Columbia, uh, but also around the world, um, it provides really important information to help protect us from, from future earthquakes that, that will happen in this, in this region. Well, BC's spring legislative session kicked off today with a speech from the throne. Lieutenant Governor Janet Austin outlining the NDP's key priorities and agenda. Our Keith Baldry is live in <coughs> Victoria this evening. Uh, Keith, throne speeches are typically light on detail, but what stood out to you today? Yeah, no exception with today's throne speech, 26 pages, very aspirational document, very vague on details. Today is all about pomp and ceremony in many respects, the honour guard and such. Uh, again, bit of a fun day over here when the house reopens because of the pomp and ceremony. But there were some clues in this document that shows the government's priorities and perhaps some specifics we're going to see unfold in the coming weeks. Healthcare, uh, uh, public safety got a lot of attention today. House, refreshed housing strategy in the fall is one of the other promises. Also, a new addictions care model is going to be unveiled. No details on that yet. Uh, improved cancer care is now becoming a priority. We've slipped a bit in that category. Uh, cracking down on crime, specifically gangs and street crime. No details on that. And a unique one here, far fitting the climate change agenda, electric car charging stations in condo buildings. The new legislation is coming in to increase the number of charging stations. Ravi Kalan, the government house leader today, also disclosing in the, house, in the throne speech this massive deficit, or massive surplus the government's spent, uh, sitting on is going to be spent on returning money to British Columbians. We caught up with him. Also, B.C. Liberal leader Kevin Falcon says the government's good on issuing news releases, not so much on results. Here's the two of them. With the rising interest rates, uh, all economists are predicting a slowdown in the economy, and uh, I think it's prudent on us to make sure that uh, we have the investments that are needed to support people now in our budgets. And certainly we believe that now's not the time to be cutting services to people. Here's the problem. From the very first day I came here, I said to all of you gathered here that results really matter. And at the end of the day, I acknowledge this government's great at doing press releases and great at doing announcements. The problem is they're terrible at getting results. 
Now, you may be wondering, where is Premier David Eby? Well, he wasn't here today. He was on a plane to Ottawa to attend tomorrow's pivotal meeting with other premiers and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to hammer out a new health care funding model. Uh, billions of dollars are at stake there. I think it made sense for Eby to go there to Ottawa rather than spend a day here uh, about a throne speech that doesn't have a lot of specifics. Reports back east say the feds are offering a 10-year deal to the premiers with annual increases to the Canada Health Transfer. Again, we're talking billions of dollars. Mr. Eby's there tomorrow. We'll have a full report on that in tomorrow's news hour. Looking forward to what comes out of those meetings. Thank you, Keith. A Tri-Cities man is telling a story of receiving very poor service after ordering a cab. The man has cerebral palsy, and he believes the driver kicked him out because he was mistaken for being impaired. Aaron MacArthur has his story and the response from the cab company. Three days later, Joseph Resendez is still upset at what happened. Needing to get to a soccer game, the educational assistant pre-booked a taxi to take him from Port Moody to New Westminster Friday night. His problems began as soon as the cab showed up. The driver wouldn't take his credit card. No, he, he insisted on cash and he said he would take me to the uh, bank machine. He agreed to pay in cash and stopped at a bank machine in Newport Village. But that seemed insufficient for the driver, who demanded the payment up front. Resendez thought this was unfair and urged the driver to start the meter, something the driver appeared unwilling to do. He got verbally aggressive, and he said he would, his word, he said he would not move the car an inch further unless I paid full cash. Resendez, who has cerebral palsy, is confident his disability played a role in his treatment. Too often, because of his slurred speech and physical impairment, he says people might think he's intoxicated. I'm not after Bel Air, I'm not after anybody. I just want you know, to know that they have rights and, they, and nobody should be treated this way. Bel Air Taxi says it's investigating what happened Friday night, but the company has a very different version of events, indicating Resendez acted aggressively and seemed unwilling to pay more than $20 for the fare. Coquitlam Mayor Richard Stewart says companies like Bel Air that have sold licenses to independent operators have little authority to enforce the rules. We really expected the drive, the taxi industry to, to up its game and to be better uh, with the introduction of competition into that uh, industry. Resendez says he plans on using rideshare more often. No reason to get hassled by a driver when the ride-sharing app will gladly take his credit card. Aaron McCarthy, Global News. Now, British Columbia introduced a taxi bill of rights in 2008, and it states passengers have the right to be picked up and transported to their stated destination by any available on-duty taxi driver. They can pay the posted rate by cash or accepted credit card or taxi saver voucher. And they have the right to a courteous driver who provides assistance if requested. If you have a complaint about the service you receive, you can make it through Consumer Protection BC. Residents of an SRO on Vancouver's downtown east side have been living with a broken elevator for months. Today, they took their concerns to the streets, demanding answers from the Portland Hotel Society. As Kristen Robinson reports, their concerns were heard, but they could still be without an elevator for another two months. 
next the elevator. Tenants of the Portland Hotel, many living with mobility issues, haven't had a working elevator for almost five months. It makes you feel like you, you're uh, very unimportant. At night you'll see about 10 of us in the lobby sleeping because we don't um, can't climb the stairs. It almost seems as though we're being uh, disposable. The elevator at 20 West Hastings, out of service since September. I've been stuck in my room for the last four months. When we reported on the broken elevator last month, BC's housing minister says it wouldn't be fixed until April due to supply chain challenges. The building is owned by PHS Community Services Society, which also operates the 88 units of nonprofit housing. On Monday, residents took their concerns to PHS. My message is have a little heart. People are disabled and you're ruining people's lives. This is getting a little out of hand and they agree with me. So we'll see. PHS did not respond to our January 21st inquiry about the Portland Hotel's broken elevator. More than two weeks later, we offered PHS an opportunity to address residents' concerns on camera. CEO Michael Vaughn told us we are not able to provide an interview. There was uh, some serious issues in that uh, elevator. We had some parts we were going to uh, try to fix it with, but then the decision was made to actually redo the whole entire shaft, and that's why the parts are delayed slightly longer than we'd like them to. The housing minister says people with mobility challenges were offered options to live elsewhere in the interim, and some accepted. Eventually got put into different apartments, but I think it took months and months and months of uh, them being like in a prison cell, basically, on the fourth and fifth floor. Kristen Robinson, Global News. The Vancouver Folk Festival might not be dead after all. Three weeks after announcing this year's Folk Festival would be cancelled and the Folk Festival Society would be dissolved, the Board of Directors has decided to soldier on and try to save the annual event. But... It says the organizers still face the same difficult financial situation that prompted the cancellation in the first place. So it's launched a fundraising campaign on the FolkFest website and it's urging fans and supporters to join the effort to save the event. Bombshell accusations against the RCMP, allegations of harassment against young Indigenous women and a whistleblower who blames investigators for covering the whole thing up. That's next on the NewsHour. Man, I thought it was a dream for sure. The songwriting Grammy winner from North Vancouver and the star he says he owes his career to. Plus... The lights just went out and the ref sent us to the room and that's where it all started. What happened when the lights went out at the good old hockey game? Stick around to find out. Right now, though, fresh questions tonight about why RCMP officers in Prince George were never investigated or charged after another Mountie complained about their treatment of Indigenous girls several years ago. A former staff sergeant has come forward suggesting how this was handled smacks of possible criminal behavior and a cover-up. And as Catherine Urquhart reports, Indigenous leaders say it further erodes trust in the National Police Force. In 2004, Judge David Ramsey was convicted and jailed for sexually assaulting Indigenous girls in Prince George. Several RCMP members were also named in court by those same Indigenous victims. But not one officer was found to have done anything wrong. Now, an alarming report uncovered by Global News alleges cover-ups and possible criminal acts. I think it's absolutely disgusting 
That's outrageous. The allegations are in this report by the RCMP's Civilian Review and Complaints Commission. It investigated after retired Staff Sergeant Gary Kerr complained, saying a female member told him about a cover-up during her time serving in Prince George. It's simply stunning. It's, it's unbelievable to think that uh, the RCMP did nothing from when I made the first phone call in 2011. Uh, there was never any investigation. The Mountie said she had found disturbing videos in the home she once shared with her ex, also a Mountie. The tapes purportedly showed officers harassing Indigenous girls. She said the tapes were taken by her ex when he allegedly broke into her home, not long after she went to her superiors, who told her to stay quiet. The ex denied any wrongdoing and was not charged with an offence. There could be a criminal investigation, and there should be a criminal investigation, in my opinion, against at least two of those senior RCMP officers for obstruction. I believe they obstructed justice. The RCMP's Civilian Review and Complaints Commission found no one in a position of authority in E-Division reasonably ensured a timely assessment of criminal misconduct or code of conduct breaches. No one ensured a reasonable investigation was conducted. It also states the acting chief superintendent failed to comply with reasonable evidence handling practices and RCMP policy on exhibit handling. And this is yet another example of how deeply steep the RCMP are in their racist notions that Indigenous people, Black people, and people of color are really not worthy of uh, uh, fair treatment. The report's recommendations included assessing the allegations and whether there was any criminality. RCMP headquarters in Ottawa did not respond to questions. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. The independent agency that investigates police in B.C. says it is in crisis because of a shortage of staff. The Independent Investigations Office says it's struggling with little more than half the people it needs. And as Romina Dea reports, it faces double the caseload. Richmond RCMP Constable Jasmine Tiara was apparently four weeks pregnant when she ostensibly died by suicide February 21st, 2021, after an alleged inappropriate relationship with her supervisor. Almost two years later, the IIO, the independent police watchdog, is still investigating. My team has worked as diligently as they can on this file. But our resources right now are such that we're stretched so thinly. The IIO in crisis. The chief civilian director, Ron McDonald, says he does not have enough investigators to do the job the public expects. Ramina, I, I sleep poorly at night worrying about um, our current situation, worrying about the stress that our investigators are under, worrying about the stress that that places on those who are being investigated and those who are awaiting our outcomes. The independent civilian agency averaging 200 new files a year, nearly double the workload from five years ago. Cases taking 50% longer to complete, says McDonald. 36 frontline investigators needed. The IIO has 19. My greatest fear is that we're not going to be able to do our job at all. I, I fear that we could get to a situation where we can't respond to a new case. 
McDonald not encouraged by what he's hearing from government thus far. One of the greatest challenges, salary, 15% lower than comparative positions, plus the IIO does not pay overtime. Another issue, former BC officers have to wait five years before they can apply. An issue that we're taking very seriously. We have looked at flexibility in hiring, and, and I'll be meeting with, the, with him this week and our team to try to figure out what might help to relieve the recruitment and retention issues they're having. Timeliness crucial when it comes to public confidence. Dale Culver's family waited six years for answers. Five RCMP officers were just charged in connection to the Prince George Indigenous man's death. If the public loses faith in the oversight, then we're in a dangerous situation. Romina Dea, Global News. Coming up, Chinatown tragedy, the latest on a homicide that's closed a major roadway through the historic district for most of the day. Also tonight, a new poll showing Canadian-style health care might be on life support. Traffic is steady in both directions over here at the Alex Fraser Bridge, but there is some leftover volume on the east-west connector between Knight and the S-curve. Through Kermac Cares for Kids, expert repair for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. When you choose Kermac, you choose to support BC Children's Hospital. Kermac Cares for Kids. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Vancouver police are investigating a homicide in Chinatown. Officers were called to West Pender and Carroll Street shortly after midnight after discovering a man's body. The victim has not been identified and police say no arrests have been made so far. The area has been closed to vehicle traffic pretty much all day. Anyone with information on the incident is asked to call VPD's homicide unit. And IHIT is investigating a suspicious death at an apartment building in the Guildford neighborhood where a woman was found dead and a man was seriously injured last night. Just after 6 p.m., fire crews were called to an apartment com complex near 149th Street and 102A Avenue and found the fire alarm and sprinkler systems had been triggered. The building was evacuated, but crews determined there wasn't a fire. Instead, a woman's body and a severely injured man were taken out from a suite in the building later in the evening. When we walked up, we seen uh, police outside by department and that's all I knew, you know. People were all outside and nobody would say anything. They said the uh, injured person was taken away. Their identities and the nature of injuries has not been released. Surrey Police and IHIT, or Surrey RCMP rather, and IHIT say there is no ongoing risk to the public. A coroner's report reveals prominent COVID-19 denier Mac Parhar died from an accidental drug overdose and also had COVID-19 at the time of his death. The 48-year-old was found dead in his new Westminster apartment in November of 2021. Parhar was one of the province's most outspoken pandemic deniers and also gained notoriety for believing the earth is flat. In a video posted online days before his death, Parhar said he wasn't feeling well and had taken ivermectin, an anti-parasite drug widely touted in the anti-vaccine community. According to the coroner's report, fentanyl, cocaine and ethanol were all detected in his system at the time of his death. The coroner also notes despite being COVID positive when he died, there is no indication the illness contributed to his death. Coming up, a crisis of care in Island Health. There's sort of no skill set around problem solving or, or finding creative solutions to, to the difficulty we've had. 
Doctors make allegations of mistreatment and mismanagement. Why they say people's lives are at stake. And coming up in sports, from Beau to Beauvilliers, the new era begins tonight as the Canucks take on New Jersey and off to a good start. Counterflow is out over here at the Massey Tunnel, and traffic is moving well in both directions. Do keep in mind there's overnight construction near Highway 17A. Renew your ICBC Auto Plan online with BC's most trusted insurance brand. Just select BCAA as your preferred broker. Learn more at bcaa.com slash car. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. Two doctors on northern Vancouver Island are calling for changes at the top of Island Health. They claim a lack of communication and action to deal with a health care crisis. Kylie Stanton reports. The clock is ticking for Dr. Alex Natteris. Come July, he'll be the only emergency physician working in Port Hardy. We're struggling to hold on to doctors up here on the North Island due to, um, unfortunately, consistent uh, mistreatment and mismanagement by Island Health. I'm Dr. Ben Williams. On Friday, Natteris tweeted calling for the resignation of the Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Ben Williams, claiming ongoing dereliction of duty to meet basic job responsibility to provide medical leadership for Island Health. This is a critical issue. We need more support in the North Island. We need our health authority to support us as frontline providers and to listen to us. It appears Natteris is not alone. According to Doctors of BC's annual survey results released last week, Vancouver Island healthcare workers reported the lowest level of satisfaction with their health authority in the province, with only 40% of respondents saying they were satisfied with practicing medicine in the region. That's a 14% drop since 2021 and down 10% from the provincial average. It's a struggle for us to see this continue to break down. Dr. Priyan Armogam, who has been practicing in Port McNeil for the past 17 years, shares Natteris's concerns. The sort of no skill set around problem solving or, or finding creative solutions to, to the difficulty we've had. We need a fresh start. On top of the challenge of recruiting and retaining doctors, the region has been battling sudden emergency room closures since the spring. Returning to regular hours, 24-7 hours, is the goal. In late January, the health minister announced $30 million in funding to address the issues. But some of those on the front lines aren't confident anything will change until the leadership does. People's lives are at stake. In a statement, Island Health CEO Kathy McNeil defended Dr. Williams and his focus on patient safety, writing, if a physician has a concern, they are well aware of the mechanisms available to them to raise their concerns. Dr. Williams has my complete and continued confidence in his leadership. Kylie Stanton, Global News. The average wait time at walk-in clinics in this province is now clocking in at more than an hour. That's according to Medimap, a tech company that matches patients with walk-in clinics to simplify access to care. The average wait time in B.C. was 79 minutes in 2022, up from 58 minutes the year before. Patients waiting the longest to see a doctor are in North Vancouver, where the wait is 160 minutes on average and Victoria with 137 minutes. Medimap says the data is proof the healthcare system is struggling to provide adequate care. 
Well, the COVID-19 pandemic forced healthcare systems across Canada to change in many ways. And three years later, new polling conducted exclusively for Global News suggests there is another shift happening. As Catherine Ward reports, there's growing dissatisfaction and calls to look at what private healthcare could offer. And we've come out at the other end with people feeling much less confident uh, in the ability of the healthcare system to deliver the services they may need when they need them. Long hailed as a key part of the Canadian identity. For the most part, it's, uh, it's pretty much free here in Canada. New data indicates the system has become a source of frustration. I don't like having to wait so long to get services. And desperation. I think the healthcare system is very broken. Polling done exclusively for Global News shows 85% of Canadians believe drastic changes are needed. Roughly 6 in 10 would support the private delivery of publicly funded health services and that they are in favour of private health care for those who are able to afford it. A shift in opinions Ipsos CEO Daryl Bricker says he hasn't seen in decades of polling. What's happened to health care is it's moved from being a long-term issue to being something that's much more immediate. The growing favour toward private care comes despite an increase in the cost of living and rising interest rates. Well, it just shows how desperate they are to get good health care services in a timely way. Some doctors caution transitioning to a private model could only make things worse. We are not going to be able to manufacture more doctors, more hospitals, more health services. And so the people who have trouble right now getting access to service are going to have an even bigger problem getting access to those services. A move towards more privatized services will increase the disparity of health outcomes for the rich and the poor. Others say key investments are needed now. Healthcare is a political football, and I think most of us are tired of people handing it off. Catherine Ward, Global News, Toronto. Just ahead, a little blackout bonding. We came together and trying to make a little bit of fun out of it. How bitter rivals found friendship when the power went out at the hockey rink. But first, refreshing news for Sunshine Coast residents living under water restrictions for the past three months. Water restrictions that have been in place on the Sunshine Coast for nine months have now been lifted. The Sunshine Coast Regional District confirms Stage 1 water conservation regulations have been rescinded in the Chapman water system. The reservoir serves about 90% of residents on the Sunshine Coast. A state of emergency was declared in October after a summer drought that lingered into the fall left water levels critically low. The district says levels have since bounced back enough to lift all restrictions. And the levels might increase even further. <laughs> Feels that way With outside, a couple of days it? of rain. Let's bring in senior meteorologist Christy Gordon with a look at a wet forecast. Christy? Yes, a very wet forecast. So the next 24 hours, really. Now, the Sunshine Coast not included necessarily in this warning, but you can see it's certainly touching into that area. And I'll show you how much they can expect. But how sound is included in the warning as well as all of northern Metro Vancouver. And we're talking about 50 to 70 millimeters of rain. But there could be some localized area that could see even more. For example, this computer model showing the Coquitlam area in northeast Metro Vancouver with potentially up to 90 millimeters of rain. Now, the Sunshine Coast 
northern regions not as much but you can see touching down into areas like Seashell uh, more significant amounts so this is tonight through the day tomorrow easing off tomorrow afternoon here's a look at the impact on the highways Kootenai Pass under a snowfall warning pardon me it is a winter storm warning because they may see uh, windy conditions this is no uh, we're going to see 25 centimeters of snow and that is mainly for tomorrow not as much for tonight here's a look at that system driving across Pine Pass you can expect significant snow tonight 10 centimeters but there's that wave for the southeastern corner of the province so again the Kootenai Pass Pulsum Summit area it's more so for late tomorrow into your Wednesday there's your forecast mild conditions across the south with highs of eight degrees showers in the interior but it's more like rain for our region and we do have a risk of thunderstorms along with it tomorrow so tomorrow a rather stormy day with a high of eight degrees which is near seasonal for this time of year it looks like we're going to catch a little bit of a break on Wednesday with drier conditions not necessarily a lot of sunshine but the key is drier conditions as you well know and then we're back into periods of rain it looks like as we head into the latter part of the week tonight's central windows weather window is coming to you from trail this was the sunset from last night and David shared it with us feel like it looks like a painting so thank you so much David for sharing those colors with it okay very beautiful too. thank you Christy yeah all right, a musician from North Vancouver won big at the 65th Annual Grammy Awards last night, bringing home not one, but two Grammys. One of them came as Harry Styles won Album of the Year for Harry's House. North Van's Tobias Gesso Jr. co-wrote the track Boyfriend on that album. The 37-year-old singer-songwriter also won the inaugural Non-Classical Songwriter of the Year Award. For, some, or for writing some of the year's standout pop songs. Jesso says his career in music has been long and challenging. I kind of got lost along the way a lot of the time and uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. But I think like overall I had an idea. I just didn't find my way there until way late in the game. Early in his songwriting career, Jesso co-wrote songs with Adele, and he credits the English singer for his success in the music industry. Such a humble guy. There was a lot of praise showered on him mm. in some of the post-Grammy interviews, and he was just like, look, I'm working with geniuses. It's not just me. <laughs> well, the question is, where does he put the Grammys? Oh, very good question. You know, some, some people use the award as a doorstop. Yeah. Some hide it in a closet. Some people. Well, if you're Beyonce and you have about thirty something of them, then you could probably use them around the house. Yeah. She needs a warehouse to use doorstops and paperweights <laughs> and things like that. Yeah. Useful. Yeah. Where are all your useful. awards, Squire? Where do you keep yours? <laughs> I don't have any yet. <laughs> Just keep working at don't it. Don't you have an Emmy? It's in the closet See? somewhere. Okay. Uh, boy, Canucks and Devils, crazy game. We'll show you what's happening there. And the odd look of seeing Bo Horvat in an Islanders jersey. He played his first game for them tonight, too. That's different, no doubt. Also coming up tonight, bringing a little light to the darkness. How rival hockey teams actually benefited from a blackout that delayed their game for hours. All right, Squire is here now. We're adding some syllables to the Canucks lineup. <laughs> yes, we are. 
because last week Vancouver went from Beau to Beauvillier. Mm -hmm. Anthony Beauvillier starts his Canucks career tonight on a top line, or on the top line, I should say, with Elias Pettersson and Andre Kuzmenko as Vancouver begins an Eastern road trip, which will include a game against Beauvillier's former team and the Canucks' former captain, Bo Horvat and the Islanders. That is Thursday. No captain for the Canucks tonight. Vancouver is going to move around the A for alternate captain between J.T. Miller, Oliver ekman Larson, Quinn Hughes, and Elias Pettersson, who is wearing his A this evening in this game in New Jersey. All right. This game starts off with a brilliant Andre Kuzmenko goal. The move. And then goes to the wrist shot. One more look. Actually, let's do two more looks. It's so good. I want to see it thrice. We'll move on Dougie Hamilton. And the Canucks are off to a 1-0 lead. Then Quinn's brother, Jack, goes to work. Look at Quinn here. Come on, hurry up. That's your brother. Don't just watch him. Jack Hughes goes backhand, beaks Colin Delia. It's 1-1. Second period, Pedersen is a great chance. Here. Nice pass by Beauvillier off the wall, but he hits the post. And then Vasily Pod Colson, who's back from the minors, he has a chance, and he can't score. And then it's a hellacious 50 seconds for the Canucks. Dougie Hamilton's shot, tipped in by Andre Pallott. 28 seconds later, Andre Pallott scores again. Now it's 3-1 for New Jersey. Yep, I saw that look under Bruce Boudreaux's face and Travis Green's. And then within a span of 50 seconds, this is the third goal. Jack Hughes from 1-1 to 4-1 in the blink of an eye. All right. But this is this year's NHL. Leads are not safe. Luke Shen, 4-2. Rare goal scorers for Vancouver coming up. Luke Shen. Then Curtis Lazar, who hasn't scored in 37 games. This is after the Devils missed on a two-on-one. Lazar from Riley Stillman. It's 4-3 right before the end of the second period. Vancouver has got itself back in the game. And then speaking of guys who rarely score, or at least haven't scored for a long time in the NHL, Phil DiGiuseppe. 4-4. And that's the way it is now in the third period. 4-1 lead disappeared. Canucks have fought back. Okay, that looks strange. Bo Horvat with the Islanders. And he's rich. Tries to go between the legs to his new teammate, Matt, Matt Barzell, but Philadelphia picks that one off. He played just over 18 minutes in this game, Bo Horvat. Low-scoring affair. This is a goal by Kyle Palmieri. Interesting. At the end of the game, the Islanders won. Bo Horvat did exactly what he did in Vancouver. Stand near the bench and high-five everybody. 2-1 the final. Islanders win in Bo Horvat's debut. I have to show you this. Jacob Truba just wreaking havoc on the Flames tonight, fighting with Chris Tanev, hitting Dylan Dubé. That's what started the fight. But then look at this hit on Nazem Kadri. Oh! Cinch up that helmet, Kadri. That flew right off. Anyway, it's 3-2 now in the uh, third for the Rangers. Last year, the Denver Broncos allowed Russell Wilson to have his own personal quarterback coach. I'm not sure why. 
But new head coach Sean Payton says he's not going to allow that next season in Denver. Payton said the only coaches that will do the coaching around his team will be his assistant coaches. No special treatment for Russell Wilson, which actually didn't work out so well last season anyway. Uh, Pebble Beach finishing off things today, and there are pebbles at Pebble Beach. And that's Peter Molnati hitting out of the pebbles and then having to do some mountain climbing to get back in the game. The winner today, Justin Rose. This is on 13 for a bird. Rose has only four years. But he did win this by four shots. Pebble Beach Pro-Am. Nick Taylor of Abbotsford was 20th. The top Canadian was Taylor Pendrith, who had a good tournament. He was 7th overall when all was said and done. There you go. Nice to see the sunshine on the golf course, mm -hmm. isn't it, Squire? Yes, it is, but that's California. We'll get there. We're we'll get there. there. We'll get there. Give us time. Yeah, one day. All right, thanks, Squire. Up next, a power outage leads to a powerful moment for a group of young hockey players. From the stories we need to know to a look at what's happening right now around us. When BC needs to connect, BC turns to the source that brings us together. Global News. Connect. Jordan Armstrong is here now with a preview of what's coming up tonight on Global News at 11. Jordan? Chris, a change at Vancouver City Hall. The mayor's chief of staff, Kareem Alam, is leaving after less than four months on the job. He says he's returning to the private sector. Plus, in Bay, east of Sorrento, an 18-wheeler barreled into a house last week. The wreckage remains there tonight. Incredibly, no one was seriously hurt. At 11, why a neighbor says such an accident was only a matter of time. Also, what Vancouver can learn from the earthquake in Turkey. We're speaking to a UBC professor of structural engineering. And the full story at 11. Chris? Look forward to that coverage. Thanks, Jordan. Well, when the lights went out at a Nova Scotia High School hockey tournament over the weekend, it led to a very powerful moment. Shelley Steves has the story of rival teams finding friendship during the blackout. These high school hockey players boarded their bus on Sunday, still reeling from a weekend tournament that made them feel like champions off the ice. Guaranteed is something that now they will take with them for the rest of their life. Our team and their team had, like just bonded us. It all went down at Cape Breton County Arena this past weekend. After the bitter cold knocked out power in the rink for five long hours. Lights just went out and the ref sent us to the room and that's where it all started. We were down with no power for five hours and a lot of people were slumming and just getting tired and hungry. Frustrated and bored, that's when Hudson McGean decided it was time to lighten the mood and haul out some music. Brought out the speaker, seen the other team, brought it in the middle of us and then there she went. Our team decided just to join in. Cramped into a narrow rink hallway. Two teams that were supposed to be bitter rivals joined together in collective song. So we came together and tried to make a little bit of fun out of it instead of being a, a rough and like mean hockey 
you watch on the ice and these guys battle for 60 minutes and then you go out and watch them just enjoy each other and actually have fun and it's what it's all about. It made me feel so proud. And the moment felt like a playoff win for everyone. Competition in this moment, it didn't really matter. yet powerful moment that was indeed pretty sweet. Shelley Steves, Global News. I mean, how can you not with Sweet Caroline? You, you have to jump in. You have to join in. Music and hockey brings people together. And as Squire reminded us, um, speaking of hockey and music, Michael Buble, part owner of, uh, Vancouver of the Vancouver Giants, also won a Grammy last night. We didn't mention that during the no, news he hour, found so we off, should. He found out when he stepped off the stage in Milan, Germany. How many does he or have? Milan. Yeah, no, not Milan, Germany. Milan. Milan. Yeah, it, Italy? Italy. <laughs> somewhere. He stepped off somewhere. Somewhere in Europe. Somewhere, somewhere in Europe. In Europe. Yeah. Milan. Milan. Italy. Milan. There you go. Yeah. There we go. Congratulations to Michael and to Tobias, who we featured mm -hmm. a little bit earlier. All right. Do we have time for two seconds on weather, Christy? No. Oh, darn. No, I was given the no. <laughs> Rain. All right, that's good. Rain. Wet. Thanks for watching, everyone. Have a good night. We'll see you tomorrow. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. <laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.